Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. We start this week with President Trump declaring the opioid crisis a public health emergency. The declaration, which lasts 90 days, allows the Department of Health and Human Services to dedicate more resources to treat addiction. And in addition, the president said there would be a major ad campaign to get people to not begin taking opioids in the first place, uh, to require better training in the prescribing of opioids, uh, increased federally aided efforts to develop non-addictive painkillers, waiving of a rule that forbade Medicaid from paying for addiction treatment in many rehab facilities, and greater efforts to block shipments of the synthetic, synthetic opioid phenytyl from China. So now critics of this, uh, there were, of course there were critics of this speech, took, took issue, I think, with the president for three main reasons, in my estimation. And I thought we'd kind of go through them one by one. And then Jay, if you have well, any- I'd, I'd, I'd say four main reasons. Okay, I'll okay. I'll my fourth well, after you're done. But well, I'll, give you my, I'll give you my three. We'll figure out what the fourth one is. But the first thing is, I think, waiting so long to declare a public health crisis when, you know, as the president himself said, this is the worst drug crisis in world history with uh, 1 million Americans using heroin last year and more than 11 million abusing prescription opioids. So, Jay, what do you, what do you think? Is that, is that a fair criticism? Um, you know, again, I would say my, my whole take on this after you get through the, the three points is going to be, uh, to some extent, how much can the government do that it hasn't been doing already? Does declaring the emergency uh, really change things that that dramatically? I mean, if this is a matter of, uh, boy, we just could have fixed this problem if we just declared an emergency. Uh, you know, again, I think that that's just uh, that's that's sort of a, a liberal view of of the. If the government just says something's a problem and throws enough money at it, it'll fix itself. I so. Um, no, I mean, I mean, could you have done something earlier? Sure. I, I suppose, uh, will it have radically changed, uh, where we are now? Well, probably not. Um, but you know, that doesn't mean we shouldn't start now. So, okay. Well, I think that kind of plays right into my second, the second criticism that I saw is that some people arguing that the president should have declared this a national emergency instead of a public health crisis. And it's a, you know, it's a technical designation, but basically what a national emergency declaration would mean is it would be more open-ended and it would potentially allow for uh, greater federal aid than the designation that President Trump actually used. And so obviously your, you know, your point about or your objection to the first criticism would apply very much here as well, I would assume. Yeah. Well, and also I would say with the, the broader designation, you get into pulling into funds that are also have, have sort of already been uh, overtapped because of, of uh, natural disasters. Okay. Yeah. Right. That's absolutely a good point. Now, I guess my third point, my the third criticism I've seen is that a lot of folks were very disappointed that President Trump didn't call for additional funding to combat the, the crisis, which, I mean- That's always the big disappointment. Well, you know, I, I think that's, I think that's, that's very much should be. I mean, uh, you know, there are uh, various experts uh, have, you know, tried to come up with cost estimates for what it would you know, what it would cost to kind of uh, address this problem in a significant way. And all of those estimates are in the tens of billions of dollars a year, more than what's already being spent. Now, uh, 
to be fair to the president, uh, he did say he was waiting for the final report of his opioid commission. And that's due out, I believe, next week, at which point he would make more specific recommendations. Now, I, I mean, I so in a sense, I share and, and also the, the money to, to be spent, as I understand it, is is still an increase over uh, what what prior spending had been. Right. I mean, there's definitely going to be uh, an increase. Now, we don't really know the details. It, it seems in a way it almost seems odd to me that the president would make this announcement the week before his commission released its final report. It would seem to me that the, the smart thing to do uh, would have been to wait another week uh, and then come out with the announcement and say, here's what my commission recommended and here's what I'm going to do. Here's my more. So I don't really get, uh, I guess, what they call the messaging aspects of this. I don't see the difference between waiting a week or not. But but in any case, well, I, it's I just do. puzzling I to I me. Okay. Because you get, you get uh, two weeks of uh, uh, good press as opposed to one. Well, I don't think he got two weeks of good press. I think, I mean, may, maybe the press you were reading, but I think in, mo in you know, in a lot of the mainstream media, I, it, you know, there were a lot of critiques about, well, this isn't going to do anything in of itself or a whole lot, but uh, because we need to spend a lot more money, we need to, we need to, as you, you call it, throwing money at the problem, I would say, in investing in, you know, taking care of these people who are, you know, subject to this, to this awful, uh, this awful addiction crisis. But before we get a little more uh, into that, we want to thank our first uh, sponsor for today is ZipRecruiter. You know, if you're looking for great talent for your business, but you're short on time, you do not have to slog through a huge stack of resumes to find your perfect hire. You just need the right tools, smarter tools. And with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over a hundred of the web's leading job boards with just one click. So you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. And then ZipRecruiter has this smart matching technology. They, you know, actively notify qualified candidates about your job within minutes of the time you post it. So you get the best possible matches. And that's why they're different because unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It goes out and finds them. And you can even get a head start on your interviewing process by adding you know, particular screening questions to your job post to help you identify the most qualified candidate. And so, you know, considering all that, it's no wonder that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And they've got this easy to use dashboard that lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish all in one place. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, Politics Guys listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free, as in no cost. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash PoliticsGuy. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash PoliticsGuy. And for the third time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash PoliticsGuy. ZipRecruiter, the smarter way to hire. Okay, so Jay, you know, Obviously, you think that this is, I, uh, you know, you talk about what you talk about throwing money at the problem, you know, and I kind of I wanted to get your. So I, I guess I'm trying to understand what you're saying. So are you, are you saying that we do not need to devote more government resources to, uh, uh, uh what even President Trump and almost everyone across the board is calling a, a crisis, you know, and like I said, a, a million Americans using heroin last year, uh, more than 11 million abusing prescription opioids. I mean, if this isn't a problem that cries out no, for some I, I'm, sort of, I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying we should be, we should be realistic 
about the ability uh, to solve this problem with with money, uh, and 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 especially money <clears throat> sent the, the the way it is. And I'm I'm sorry, I'm shuffling my papers because I've got my I've got my actual facts here. Um, you know, according to the uh, it was a. Um, oh, see now I can't. Uh, Analysis from the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration indicated that of of those people that they they surveyed who were taking painkillers and heroin, um, nine and ten did not feel that they needed treatment. Right. Yeah, I've seen that. So, so I, I mean, I guess the thing is, okay, well, we'll spend more money for treatment. Uh, how do you get these people in there? I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying this is an easy problem. What I'm saying is money doesn't necessarily solve it. The other the other thing that that I think we we just need to be realistic about um, is 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 where where this uh, is taking place. The the uh, pushing to address uh, the prescription issue um, that's already sort of been done. And and again, the 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 numbers show that the uh, Addiction to prescription painkillers peaked in 2012. The problem now is the, you know, what's what's filled in at its place being the fentanyl and heroin. So I, and when you're talking about things like uh, stronger interdiction of blocking fentanyl from China, yeah, I think that's that's a good idea. Um, uh, you know, and, and to the extent we spend resources there, I think that's, that's probably well spent. Um, but I... I I'm I'm just I, I guess I, I just sort of uh, always take a step back when we simply say oh this is a an emergency we're going to spend more money um, that that the problem will will somehow just just be fixed and and I also I think again there's there's the idea that uh, folks are just somehow innocently uh, uh, duped into this um, and and there's a lot of um, you know, Trump, Trump drew some heat a couple of weeks ago for saying that the best, you know, thing to do with opioids is not to start. Um, and that's good advice. <laughs> I mean, that's, well, it's, it's um, good advice. You know, it's, it's how do you of, argue with that? It, it's sort of worthless advice too. I mean, sure. It's, it's, it's absolutely well, true. Advice? Well, it's, well, it's, you know, it's I mean, advice. I, okay. I, I took it. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I think that's, I, I don't, I, I just say no. I mean, that's that, that's yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and everyone criticized Nancy Reagan, just say no. It's so it's dumb and simplistic, but let's, let's compare the, the, uh, drug usage, drug addiction numbers from the, the 1980s to today. Uh, and it, it I, I mean, I think there's something to be said for that. Um, and another piece of this that I think is, is, something that people should should realize is Medicaid beneficiaries, this is based on a 2016 uh, uh, study from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Medicaid beneficiaries are prescribed, uh, prescribed uh, painkillers twice the rate of non-Medicaid patients. Um, there, uh, one in three Medicare Part D beneficiaries receives an opioid prescription. Uh, and some of these beneficiaries uh, receive more than 120 milligrams a day for at least three months. Um, and this this would point to there is some sort of I mean, the government, you know, sort of sort of opened the doors on a lot of this. Wow. And, uh, I, again, I they think should, they should clean this it up. Is, but another I, way to, to look at this is to start 
having some some better oversight of of Medicaid programs. The government, huh? Um, the government is one of the things that pushed these these drugs out there in the first place. The government is prescribing these drugs. That's that's fascinating to me. I think that's no, so no, no. entirely I'm not the wrong. Prescribing these drugs, but the it's it's the government's paying for them, and it's it's the government's lack of oversight that has allowed people to defraud the system and and get these drugs for free, which they can then resell and and you know fueling the problem. So I'm I'm you know if you want to say what we need is more government involved, well I mean let's fix the government that's involved right now first. Well, there absolutely needs to be more oversight. There absolutely needs to be, you know, stronger regulations on prescribing these things. And that, that, but that holds true whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, Humana, Aetna, Blue Cross, you name it. So, I mean, I feel like conservatives are, are using this oftentimes to just take a shot at Medicare and Medicaid. And, you know, I guess if you want to do that, you can do that. But to, to me, that misses the broader problem. And yes, we definitely need stronger guidelines on, you know, on prescribing. You know, we, we talked about an article I believe I recommended from, from last week, you know, making it, uh, the, the, a law was passed in Congress not that long ago, making it a lot harder for the FDA to, uh, to stop suspicious shipments, you know, and now people are looking at that after, you know, that became a big story. It only became a big story when the Washington Post in 60 Minutes did an expose and, and, you know, that was certainly, uh, well, we, you know, we, you and I, we could do a whole show on that and the, the guy who's pushing this and, and who his uh, current employers are, but, uh, you know, I, I, there's also, I mean, keep in mind that that law uh, is something that passed literally unanimously uh, in both houses and was signed by President Obama. Um, and it was based on a, a real problem uh, regarding some some DEA overreaches. Uh, but but setting that aside, I mean, it, it again, I, my, my point is, I think a lot of the criticisms, and this was going to be my fourth um, uh, reason to add to your the criticisms is, the guy who proposed this emergency uh, or who, who declared it, uh, his name is Donald J. Trump. And and regardless of what he's going to do, uh, he will be criticized for it. Uh, he would have been criticized if he had not declared an emergency. He would be just criticized now uh, if he spent, um, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't matter how much he spends. It would never be enough. So, I, I mean, I think I think we're, we're, we're coming down to the, the point of – in so much drug addiction, there's there's sort of a liberal view of oh, if we just spend enough money, uh, this will go away. And and I, I think many conspira- many uh, um, um, conservatives rightly see it as as more of a moral, even spiritual issue that you have to address. You have to address people, and it's not just a I don't know. It's not just throwing money. It, it's changing attitudes. It's changing minds. It's 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 changing incentives, all that. So I look. I think it's fine that uh, he declared an emergency. I don't think it's going to really make a huge difference. Uh, will it help with the margins? I think sure. Well, I think it's unfair characterization to say that liberals think that you can just throw money at the problem and it'll go away. I mean, I certainly don't think that, and many of the liberals that I know don't think that. I think we we certainly acknowledge the fact that people in economically devastated regions with no good job prospects, oftentimes from broken families, you know, uh, they're they are more uh, uh, likely to 
turn to drugs and things like that. And that that's obviously a tragedy and we need to be concerned about these larger things, but that's part of the issue. Certainly that's more fundamental. And, and actually those predictors, uh, again, according to this, this, uh, U.S. Uh, drug survey, um, are, are higher predictors for opioid addiction than having been prescribed opioids as a painkiller. Sure. And that's one part of it. That's yeah, exactly my point. Yeah. But my point is that we have at least, according to the president, we have at least uh, 12 million people who have issues with opioids, just opioids. And obviously, if we look at other drugs, that's even more. And, you know, as I understand, though, when they're talking opioids at this point, when they're, they're, they're using the broader term and they're including uh, fentanyl and heroin. So, I mean, we're not just talking prescription opioids, we're talking prescription and, you know. I'm just going by what the president said, and the president said that we have more than 11 million people abusing prescription opioids and uh, 1 million Americans using heroin last year. So that's that's what I'm going by. And if you add in things like crystal meth and other things like that, that's even bigger. And and so, you know, you mentioned that, okay, let's say that 90% of these people uh, if according to one survey, and of course, we'd always want to be skeptical of just a single survey, uh, say that they don't necessarily feel like they need help. But even 10% of at least 11, at least 12 million, that's not an insignificant number of people. I'm sure you'd agree. And so, you know, I think we have an obligation to try to, to try to help these people who get sucked up into addiction. And there are things we can do. You know, and there are things certainly that the president called for in this that I think are going to be helpful. You know, um, uh, it seems like finally the administration is getting on board with pushing for more uh, medication-assisted treatment, uh, and that's by far shown to be the most effective treatment for uh, opioid addiction. But it's got this stigma because that idea of you know even former uh, uh, because the, because the idea is it 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 essentially creates. I mean, what yeah, what you have to do is you're you're giving other opioids to sort of take that down so you can kind of ratchet ratchet it down. Right. Exactly. There I, but you know this has been proven across the board. There's no question that this is by far the most effective way to treat uh, uh you know, to treat opioid addiction, but you know like I said even someone like former HSS secretary Tom Pricing, well, we're not going to give these people drugs to treat their drug addiction, but that's how it works. You know, I mean, so you can't really deny the, deny the results, but apparently some people want to do that. So, but anyway, it's a move in the right direction. Uh, I'm still withholding my final judgment to wait and see what the president's opioid commission comes up with and what specific recommendations the president has. I certainly hope this will lead to some sort of a bipartisan, uh, at least somewhat bipartisan agreement to spend considerably be, considerably more money to help the millions of Americans who are already uh, in, in the thrall of uh, the opioid and other drug addiction. And we'll just have to see. Okay. All right. Moving on. As many of you may know, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, my beloved CFPB. Favorite bureau. Yeah, they're near and dear to my heart. You know, and most weeks when I have the privilege of mentioning them, it's because they've struck yet another blow for consumers. Um, sadly, this week the news is just the opposite of that. Uh, Congress voted to rescind the CFPB rule that prohibited financial firms from forcing consumers to agree to arbitration of disputes, thereby denying them the ability to band together in class action suits to punish firms for malfeasance. Now, 
People on the right saw this as a major victory, pointing to a Treasury Department analysis, which concluded that the rule would have resulted in an additional 3,000 class action lawsuits and $500 million in defense fees over the next five years, costs that the administration says would be passed along to consumers. And now I should point out that the Secretary of the Treasury is Stephen Mnuchin, who used to work at Goldman Sachs. Now, I'm guessing I know how you feel about this one, Jay, but why don't you tell me anyway? Well, you know, I, I will, I will, um, you know, I think the, the treasury report, and if you, if you read it through, it's not just a matter of the treasury report says, here, here we have different numbers. They really do sort of a, a takedown of what the, um, uh, the bureau's rationale had been for putting this rule in, um, uh, you know, in terms of, of what costs they added in, what costs they didn't, uh, how likely people are to use them, how, how much they're going to get the, the uh, conservative concern about this has always been, and it's it's uh, my concern, is, is that in many cases these class action suits are sops to the plaintiff's bar. Uh, actual consumers see little if nothing uh, as far as a victory goes. Uh, the money goes to back to the government and or uh, the class action uh, plaintiff's lawyers who make uh, millions and billions uh, on this. So. I, and that's this is it's a big constituency of the Democrat Party, and this is not something that's that's new. Um, and it's trying to expand uh, mass torts um, uh, for their benefit. So the other the other piece though that I think is is fascinating and fun um, is um, uh, Richard Cortray's uh, letter response to to Congress uh, complaining about this. In which he points out, and this is this is Cordray writing that of the the uh, bank um, uh, contracts with with uh, consumers, uh, only fifty percent of of uh, financial institutions have these required arbitration clauses. Um, if you look at um, community banks, I think it's community banks. I don't know the in front of me. It's something like only seven percent have arbitration clauses. So so that sort of makes you wonder, well, is this that big a problem? If half of the banks out there do not have uh, mandatory arbitration clauses in their customer agreements, well, then there's your market solution. Then if you don't like an arbitration clause, we'll go to somebody else. Um, yeah, I mean, again, that's that to me that, that screams that this was sort of a um, solution in search of a problem. Um, and uh, I think Congress did the right thing and uh, uh, knocking this out. I couldn't disagree more with you, Jay, on this one. Now, first off on that whole. I, I, what did the banks? Why do you hate banks? What do they ever do to you? Why do you hate consumers, Jay? What do they ever do to you? Well, um, I, I'll go a lot of reason to hate consumers, but <laughs> don't get me started. We could do a whole show on that. Well, let me um, let me let me respond to some of your comments. OK, so. First off, that whole thing about Cordray rightly pointing out that I think it's around overall half of, like you said, half of all financial institutions don't have these. You know, that's, that's, I think that's an important point. And the, the reason why he was making that point is to refute the idea that somehow uh, not have, that somehow banks would be at a, financial institutions would be at a competitive disadvantage and would incur additional costs that they would have to pass along to consumers. That seems fairly illogical if half of them are competing just fine, including some big ones. I believe Citibank doesn't have them, if I recall correctly, and they're doing just fine. So that's why he mentioned that in his letter. 
Now, secondly, your argument that, well, there's a market solution because practically right around half of the financial institutions don't have these. I would argue that's not really a market solution because I think, I think in the conservative analysis of this, there's too much of a, a, a belief that consumers are going into these arrangements like uh, completely rational, you know, wonkish, pouring over the fine print toward people. I don't know of anyone. Maybe there are people out there. I don't know of anyone who in looking for a loan or opening a bank account says, wait a second, how does Citibank compare to Wells Fargo in terms of the binding arbitration? I, I, maybe someone does that, but I would be really shocked. And so when no, it becomes, they, they prob- let me finish. You know, they probably don't, but there's also the, the idea of if you have people who have somehow felt they've been wronged. Uh, in the past, and they've run up against an arbitration clause, and they've said, this is unfair. Uh, I want to uh, go to court with uh, thousands of other people and uh, receive $5 uh, at the end of it. Um, you know, and in that case, if those people feel they've been wronged, they they can say, no, I'm now going to opt for a bank that doesn't have an arbitration clause. Sure, and that's well after the fact, after the damage has been done. Now, secondly- after they've lost their $5, yeah. Well, I mean, and that's another thing that conservatives point to, and I think it's it's a true argument, but it's in part disingenuous. You know, you're absolutely right that the average award for arbitration is considerably higher than the average award for a class action. The figures I saw were the average award for a class action uh, right around like $32 or something for arbitration, like 5200 something like that. So there's a significant difference there. But in that analysis, in those figures that are pulled out there, there are two things that aren't often talked about, at least on the right, I don't think. The first of these is that a lot of people simply don't even bother to go to to go through arbitration. They're intimidated. They don't go through the process. And so there are a lot fewer uh, I don't even call claims that are that are filed for arbitration because of that because it's a much more daunting thing, me going up against the company, that sort of thing. Now, secondly, and so, so right there, I think that's one important point. The second important point is that uh, it relates to what the purpose of having class actions is. And yes, a big part of it, certainly, is to get uh, a compensation for the people who've been wrong. That's a big part of it. But another big part of it is to help prevent companies to give companies a disincentive to do these kind of shady things in the future. And that's where class action suits can be very valuable. If a company can get hit with a big enough class action suit, well, they say, well, we're not going to do that again. It's not just the cost of doing business where we have to pay a few, a few complainers, a few thousand dollars. Well, that's worth it as far as we're concerned. But if all of a sudden we have to worry about potentially multi-million, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars, well, that becomes a real disincentive. In fact, I would go so far as to argue that if you're not a fan of regulation, this might actually be a, a better thing. Presumably, if we you know cut certain regulations but allowed people to file, file class action suits, there'd be a non-regulation heavy way for firms to act in the interest of the public because they'd be more inclined to self-police for fear of these lawsuits. No, I, I, here's here's I think the the point though that that uh, liberals and, the, and uh, well, those who, those who support uh, this anti-arbitration movement miss is you're assuming that all, all the claims that are made are, are legitimate claims. 
there's a tremendous cost in class action litigation, uh, and there is a a tremendous pressure to just settle and pay, even when even when you have a a meritorious defense. Um, uh, I I think that's that's the bigger problem is that uh, class actions can be used as shakedowns. Um, and uh, the more the more this is uh, available, uh, the less you can. Um, uh, the, the more shakedowns you have, the more costs uh, to everyone. Um, I could I could give you some. Uh, um, we we could do, we should just do a whole show on arbitration. I think we I could that would be fun. We could do like a Wednesday arbitration show. Um, but uh, the the sense is that uh, um, it's not consumer friendly, and, and arbitration is not all that daunting uh, in the real world. Um, uh, what it does do is is requires the uh, uh, the claimant to actually make make some uh, uh, make some proof and not simply just be a name and and you know in so many class action suits you you don't even know that you're suing you don't even know you're a plaintiff until after the case is over and you get the, the letter saying you may be in a class uh, that's entitled to this so um, uh, again um, uh, three cheers for uh, for Congress in this and. Uh, Cordray will have to go back to the drawing board. Yeah, well, I, uh, like I said, I, I, I think you're, you're somewhat wrong on, on a number of things, but I think you're more wrong on this than on most things, Jay. Um, you know, one we, thing I, we, we are this, it's, I just think, I think it's odd. The, the thing we probably argue about most and, and where we have the most vehement disagreements is like bank arbitration, but yeah, that is kind of, <laughs> it's just something about us, I think. I don't know. But, uh, uh, you know, one thing before we move on from this story, I wanted to point out is that a lot of these problems, at least as Republicans see them, uh, are going to be self-limiting because Rob Cordray's term is getting close to being up. The, the uh, CFPB head is a five-year term, and uh, Donald Trump is pretty soon going to have the opportunity to appoint a replacement. And I think it's fair to say that whoever is the neck who, who's running the CFPB next is not going to be nearly as much of a thorn in the side of financial institutions and, uh, and conservatives as Rob Cordray's been. Okay. Well, you would agree with that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, before I move on, we'd like to thank our newest supporter, Anne, from Monroe, Wisconsin. She says she loved our recent interview with Dr. Luis Perez-Breva, and she goes on to say, I think your podcast does such a fantastic job of covering both sides of the issue. I understand that you, Jay, and Trey are not going to agree on everything, like, you know, arbitration, <laughs> but I, I appreciate that it's done with respect and some truly good reasoning from everyone. You give me a lot to think about, and I like that. I'm tired of listening to programs that tend to support only one side of things. And I hate listening to call-in shows where a lot of people think it's a good opportunity to express their dissatisfaction and even hatred, but give little to no reasoning. Or the opposing side, unfortunately, usually conservative, she says, who come off sounding exactly like the other group seems to think we all are anyway. So thank you very much, Anne. We really appreciate your support. And, uh, you know, support of great listeners like Ann helps keep us going. And if you'd like to join her and help out the show, go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link that you'll see there. Okay, moving on. This week, Arizona Republican Senator Jeff Flake, one of the harshest congressional critics of President Trump, announced that he will not seek re-election in 2018. Uh, Flake made the announcement in a 17-minute speech in which he commented with dismay on the casual undermining of our democratic ideals and the reckless, outrageous, and undignified behavior of President Trump. 
Now, Flake is extremely unpopular with Arizona voters, uh, with one poll showing him only having 18% approval. Uh, He was facing a primary fight he probably couldn't have won, and even if he had, he would have come up against a strong Democratic Party opponent in the general election. Now, Flake's announcement comes not long after Tennessee Republican Senator and also Trump critic Bob Corker announced that he, too, would not seek re-election. So, uh, Jay, is the moderates abandoning ship, or what do you make of this? Well, I don't know. I'm not. I'm, first of all, I'm not sure if it's if it's fair to characterize Flake as as moderate. Uh, or I think Corker, really, yeah. Say, uh, fairly uh, claim as a moderate, um, but Flake did have more more sort of a, a conservative uh, background. Although he was he was more moderate on immigration, which uh, is is what I think hurt him most in, in Arizona. Um, I think a lot of this. I mean, sometimes I, I saw this written somewhere else, so I can't claim the um, the, the, the phrase, but it's sort of, um, in politics, uh, people often make a virtue of necessity. Uh, and I think that's sort of a little bit of, of, of this is, uh, Flake had a, a tough race, uh, uh, in, in Arizona. I mean, he, I wouldn't even say a tough race, uh, for, for whatever reasons, I think some of the immigration, uh, part of it, uh, he just never really caught on out there, and uh, he had a he had a tough race in 2012, and he would have a difficult time being reelected. And I think everyone realized that the writing was on the wall. Um, so it was better to uh, to uh, uh, cut and uh, you know get out, do something else, and uh, open this up for what what is typically going to be a, a Republican seat um, uh, for another Republican to to hold it. So. I mean, I think in in some respects he saw the writing on the wall, and you can you can you can read it as doing that. You can read it as taking one for the team. You can uh, you know, and and in in the you know he had to give a good reason. You can't you can't get up and stand on the the well of the Senate and say I've decided I'm going to run for reelection, be, uh, not run for reelection because I'm probably going to get beat. Um, you know, you want to make sort of a case of I'm stepping aside because of the tarnished politics of our time and so forth. So. Um, you know, he did what he had to do. I think it probably helps preserve a, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, establishment Republican holding that seat. I think the uh, the challenger from the the Bananistas um, uh, is is something of a flake, and I think other any other uh, candidate will, will beat her. So. Well, you know, I wanted to point out that you know, I said the moderates abandoning ship. Uh, uh, Certainly, Jeff Flake, as you rightly pointed out, is is no moderate. His lifetime rating for the American Conservative Union, they rate all legislators on being, you know, well, conservative, as the name might suggest, is, I think, somewhere over 93, and Corker's is a little bit over 80, so... So yeah, these are not these are not uh, uh, squishy kind of you know uh, 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 Susan Collins type of type of people, right? So these are solid conservative type folks, and I think it's important to to keep that in mind. Um, and as you pointed out, I think you're right that Flake uh, doing what he did is going to make it is sort of taking one for the team in that sense. Um, to me, the bigger picture is is in 2018 there will be 33 Senate races. Now of those 33 there are only eight in which the incumbent is a Republican, right? Now, at this point already, two of the eight, two of those eight Republicans have announced their retirement. Um, now, Steve Bannon previously said that Breitbart would essentially wage war against all of them in favor of more uh, 
nativist, non-free trade supporting candidates, with one exception, that being Ted Cruz. So basically, of the seven people that, that Bannon said we're going after, uh, two of those seven has said, you know, I don't want any part of this. <laughs> so, you know, that's, uh, I mean, I guess what I'm wondering is this, is this a, a, a move towards more uh, polarization, radicalization of the Republican Party, at least in the Senate? I, I don't think so. Um, and, and the reason I, I'm, I'm saying that is uh, Bannon can talk a lot about, oh, we're going to take on these guys, um, but he needs to have actual candidates to do so. And, and so far, the, the candidates he's come up with uh, have been sort of uh, just kind of kooks. Um, you know, for example, the, the woman who would be the uh, primary challenger in Arizona is someone who has expressed a lot of interest in uh, whether the, the government or someone else is poisoning us with, uh, airplane contrails. Um, uh, there, I mean, there, there have been others who are, uh, sort of, you know, five, six time losers or the, the people who just like to run for stuff. Uh, and, and, um, uh, so I, I, I don't think, uh, Bannon's going to have those candidates and in, in a Senate race, um, having some sort of local connection is, is different than, um, a national race where like a Donald Trump can, can jump in and, uh, not everyone can be for, for whatever you want to say about him. Um, uh, Donald Trump does have a, a certain appeal about him, right? I mean, that's how he, he won the, uh, the nomination. It's, it's, uh, uh, that's why he had a TV show. I mean, people like to watch him. Um, and I don't think that's, that's the same as, uh, that that's going to carry over with some of these other candidates. Uh, you could point to Roy Moore winning, uh, in Alabama. And again, I'd say, well, that's a little different because again, this isn't someone who just out of the blue that Bannon recruited or was just sort of the, uh, regular neighborhood kook who runs for everything. Um, he'd been a Supreme court justice, uh, Alabama Supreme court justice. So he'd run for office there. He had a political operation. He was in the news. He had high name ID. So there was a lot of, you know, very Alabama centric on the ground, regular reasons uh, why he would win. And, I, and I, I just don't know that those factors are going to be there in these other races. Well, you know, I, I hope you're, I hope you're right. And I hope you're wrong in a way. Um, uh, there, there's certainly part of me that says, well, it would be great if some really uh, radical kooky sort of people could get Republican nominations because it would give Democrats a better chance at knocking them off. But on the other hand, that's, I, I, I recall myself over a year ago, year and a half ago saying, my God, wouldn't it be great if Donald Trump were the nominee? Cause you know, the Democrats will be able to take Congress. How and could win. we lose? Yeah, you know, yeah. exactly. So I, I've become a little more careful about that, that way of thinking uh, because the public can do interesting things. That's for sure. So. Well, no, let's w wait and see. But I, I, I really think that if you remember, you know, Ross Perot after his his run for president, there was this idea of who oh, he's going to start a reform party and there's going to be all these reform candidates. And the same thing sort of fizzled uh, just because uh, I, I think it's easier for someone to grab national attention uh, and, and get that sort of national uh, recognition than it is to win on a statewide basis. And I, for lots of reasons, mostly relating to the media and what they cover and what they don't cover. But um, well, that, that makes sense to me. And actually, uh, the, the, I'd like to think the better part of me uh, agrees with you and hopes that you're right. Because all, although from a partisan perspective, of course, I want to see more Democrats win seats. I think that we're all better off if sort of people 
with extreme views aren't even in that position where they could win seats. I like to think that both parties can sort of filter them out before it gets to that point. So, all right, well, um, moving on, Congress this week passed a budget blueprint, which is only important in that it clears the way for the Senate to move forward with tax reform without having to worry about a Democratic filibuster, meaning that they only need 50 votes to pass their tax cut legislation because, of course, uh, Vice President Mike Pence can vote to break ties. But divisions are already emerging, um, even, you know, even though uh, not even a draft of this tax legislation has been put together. And at this point, the two main issues at this point appear to be, uh, first off, 401k plans. Uh, the second, late, second issue being the deduction for state taxes. Now, initially, many Republicans hoped to pay for the tax cuts, at least in part, by putting a very restrictive cap on 401k contributions. Now, that wouldn't prevent people from saving for retirement, but it would force them to do it in accounts that are immediately taxable instead of taxable when the funds are withdrawn, as is the case with you know, 401ks. In other words, it was a way to get the money up front, right? Now, the sec that second contentious point, much more contentious, I think, at the end is going to be the state tax deduction. You know, there are many Republicans supporting it. The few Republicans from higher tax states don't like this idea at all. And given how close things are, especially in the Senate, where, of course, President Trump has kind of gone out of his way, sometimes it seems to alienate a number of Republicans, this could really be decisive. Um, I, right now, the 10 highest tax states, uh, they are represented by 17 Democrats and three Republicans, uh, those three Republicans, two from Iowa, one from Wisconsin. That can make a real difference. Now, the current plan, according to uh, Senate leadership, is to have the legislation written in a matter of weeks and have a bill for President Trump to sign by the end of the year, which would be really shockingly fast for something so incredibly complex. Um, to give you a way of comparison, the 1986 tax reform le legislation took seven months from introduction to signing. So, um, Jay, what are your thoughts on where we are, are with it right now? I, I think we're going to get um, some sort of tax reform before the end of the year. I think there's there's the momentum is there. Um, I, I think, you know, with these these um, the, the state and local, I mean, well, it, it, Trump sort of has gone back and forth on this 401k issue. Uh, originally, uh, there were some folks, the uh, House budget chairman uh, had had made indications the well 401ks were on the table. Uh, Trump tweeted, no, they're not. Uh, he has come back and said, well, no, they're not. Now we're not sure what the Senate's going to do with that. Um, I think there's there's plenty of good reasons not to to mess with uh, 401k, 401k contributions. Um, uh, just from from both economic and ideological reasons, it's it's one of these things in the tax code that you know creates an incentive to do something that is is uh, really good for everybody. Um, the state and local tax uh, uh, question, not not quite as much, because what that does is creates an incentive uh, or an ability for for state and local governments to raise their taxes, uh, knowing that it'll be uh, subsidized by by taxpayers from some other state. Um, so look, in either either case, I think there are ways that you can um, reach a compromise. Uh, you know, that's that's sort of the good thing when you're talking about this kind of dollars and cents bill. Is yeah, if you want to talk about caps, well, we can move the numbers up or down. Uh, if you want to talk about how much 
uh, state and local taxes are uh, deductible. Well, we can we can set limits on that and set caps on that and who gets to deduct them and who doesn't. Um, so there's 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 ways to do that. You can phase out deductions. Um, I think the the Republican um, lawmakers uh, realize this is a, a do or die situation. Uh, and, and having an imperfect bill is going to be better than having no bill at all, uh, with the exception of sort of like your Rand Paul types. Um, uh, so I think I think they're going to get there, and I think the House vote showed that you're going to get there. Um, it was it was close, and I think that's the fact that it was a close vote. I think is a good sign, and I'll explain that in a minute. But go ahead. Well, there was one, you know, about the the House vote. There was one House Republican who said, uh, you know. We are asked to vote for a budget that nobody believes in, so we have the chance to vote for a tax bill that nobody's read. You know, and and to me, this is the tragedy of the modern Congress that I mean, this I think you're right. Something's going to happen. I mean, it's going to be some sort of tax cut, you know, uh, not really tax reform in the, the way I think would be more ideal. And it's going to happen so quickly. You know, I, I, and I think that that comparison to 86 is a good one. This is not the kind of thing. You should push through in weeks. You know, when 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 uh, Republicans decried uh, Obamacare and, uh, you know, some of the early Obama legislation being just pushed through very quickly, I think they had a point. But even then, we were talking months and months for that to get passed here. They're talking weeks. This is, you know, John McCain made this point. This is no way to pass. This this bill, this final bill could be is, is likely to be thousands of pages. And you're going to push it through in a matter of weeks because, well, we need something by the end of the year to get a win. That that just makes me just it just makes me just shake my head in despair. And and I'm not I mean, I'm blaming the Republicans right now because they're in power. But, you know, this has clearly been a bipartisan thing. I think the the Republicans are taking it to a new level. But but this to me just makes me wonder what. What are we going to do? I mean, this is just awful. Well, no, just I awful. would say, though, I mean, you can say the tax bill may be, be big and consequential, but uh, in terms of complexity, what's been proposed, and again, no, none of us knows exactly what's going to be in it. We just have seen outlines and blueprints and so forth, uh, is the idea that uh, there's going to be sort of a leveling of, of, of rates. Uh, uh, there's going to be reductions in the uh, marginal uh uh, tax rates. Uh, there may or may not be an additional sort of millionaire's uh, tax, which would be, uh, you know, sort of simply punitive, but it would serve a political end. Um, and then you would you would make up for these lowering of rates by taking out uh, loopholes, for example, the the state and local uh, tax deduction. Um, so, I mean, I, I think the, the, the key parts are there and, and people know what we're talking about. And I think this is much less complex than uh, say Obamacare, when it was recreating a whole market and and uh, you know exchanges and and mandates and uh, Medicare expansion and, and a whole lot of other moving moving parts. I don't buy so, it. Uh, yeah, look, it would be great if if we could uh, take more time. And, well, and we can. Senator <laughs> McCain's you know complaints about I don't know. I, I I don't recall. I don't recall him complaining as much about the process when we had the, the TARP bill and the stimulus bill out there. But um, let's just talk. Let's look at his complaint. Let's look at his, his complaint, his point on its own merits and not and try to separate it from uh, from Senator McCain's various, uh, uh, you know, uh, issues. Well, no, because it, 
it's it's it goes to his sincerity though. But okay, but, but yeah, but, let's uh, let's put that aside. Let's put but, sincerity okay, but on, aside. On the merits, should should we take longer uh, to debate tax reform? Sure, I suppose maybe we should. Maybe we should. You don't think that you don't you don't think that fundamentally reworking the tax code uh, is maybe something that is the fit for the regular order and shouldn't be pushed through through reconciliation. Well, I mean, you can, perhaps, you can only but, give me a maybe again, on that. You have to look at the situation as it is. Either you're not going to get, and uh, I don't, I don't think anyone is Pollyannish enough to say that there would be a bipartisan um, tax reform bill that would not have to go through the reconciliation process. It's just not going to happen. Why not? And I think, as a, a matter of of national public policy, and me speaking as a Republican, and uh, I think a lot of economists would agree, even liberal economists. Uh, we need tax reform, particularly corporate tax reform, uh, to continue to be competitive uh, in the world. Uh, we need it to happen sooner rather than later, uh, and we can't just sit and wait because if 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 we do, it it's not going to happen. And there's also the idea of Republicans elected these representatives to do this, um, uh, and, and they didn't they didn't elect you know their representatives to. We want you to go and and do this uh, if it's okay with the Democrats too. Uh, and that's sort of the way democracy works. So see, this this to me isn't. This is exactly the way democracy does not work, because I, I think this idea. You know, again, go back to eighty six. The eighty six tax reform was passed on a bipartisan basis. Democrats and Republicans worked together. Now let's move for you know we move forward a couple of decades to Obama. Then, but there was a different. It was a different. I understand. Dynamic and who let was me, controlling the legislature and the presidency? Yeah. Then too. L- l- let me sort of finish my point here. But uh, and then we go to the Obama administration. They made an attempt to work with Republicans that didn't work. Then they ended up pushing it through, but now no one's even bothering to make that attempt. Is it, is it possible that we couldn't find tax reform legislation that could garner enough bipartisan support to pass? Sure. But I think that's, that is a, you know, a fundamental indictment of the, the sickness in the system, the fact that more and more people say, you know what, it's my way or the highway. If you can't give me exactly 100% of what I want, you're not a real liberal, you're not a real conservative, and to hell with you. That to me, that just abandoning even any attempt at that, that is fundamentally undemocratic because the democratic system is not about saying, you know, hooray for me, screw you, and it's going to be all my way or I'm not going to, I'm going to take my ball and go home. No, it's about, well, what can I, what can, what can we work out here? What kind of deal can we make? I'm not going to be thrilled with this certain parts. You're not going to be thrilled, but understand that, you know, in this legislature, there are a number of Democrats and a number of Republicans, and we need some from both parties to get something. So let's figure out something that we both can live with. And that's not, and that's what's not happening. And that's what Republicans aren't even trying to do anymore. And a lot of, and a lot of Democrats too. And I just think that's, that's just, sad and disgusting. Well, I, I, I think you have to live in the world that, uh, in the real world that you live in. Um, the 86 tax reform was bipartisan, uh, by necessity because Democrats controlled the house and Republicans controlled the presidency. Uh, so there had to be some agreement there. Uh, in this case, I think it's, it's just a, a game theory type type situation. There, there is absolutely no advantage or any Democrat uh, to to sign on to uh, uh, any kind of Trump tax reform, uh, they're going to face challenges from their left. Um, 
uh, any compromise, it, it's it's so toxic with with Trump or anyone, uh, it will be will be seen as a betrayal. Uh, I, I don't think they they can do it. So, I mean, I, I look. I think Trump has reached out to you know Chuck and Nancy on on uh, on this and other other things. But you know, I, I guess here's the thing: what what potential compromise could be offered? Uh, that Democrats would would uh, bite on. I mean, there's there's been the uh, here's the proposed uh, we do a millionaire's tax. We have this whatever fifth tax bracket. Um, uh, the the state and local reduction, um, uh, getting rid of that. Actually, it, it, you know that that benefits rich people uh, far disproportionately than it does uh, others. Um, so. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I I think this is this is an ideological difference. Uh, they're not going to be bridged. And uh, you know, as Obama said, at, at some point, elections have consequences. And it'd be great if you could work together. Uh, but if you can't, uh, again, I don't think you can just. I understand what you're saying, but I say, think that I mean, again, it's, it's whenever whenever Republicans are in office, when when Democrats are in office, elections have consequences. When Republicans are in office, it's why can't you compromise? You're not you're not compromising. Um, well, that's again, true. the, these folks didn't run on repeal and will probably replace as long as it's okay, as it's okay with the Democrats. Um, they ran on, they were going to repeal and replace. So it, you know, this, this is another example. They ran on tax reform, not tax reform. If it's, if it's okay with Chuck Schumer, um, it'd be great if it were okay with Chuck Schumer, but it's not going to be. And, and it, and that's the real world. And, um, you don't necessarily Chuck Schumer. World. You, you might need Joe Manchin, you might need some other people. But again, I, I understand what you're saying. But if, if, if this is where we're at, if all if we just sort of live, as you put it, live in the world we're in and just assume that everything is strategy and tactics and and everything's a zero sum game, uh, then then I think we've just lost what was used to be good and important about uh, uh, American politics and American democracy. And 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 maybe you're OK with that, but I'm not willing to. To, to get to that point, I'm not willing to not push people to not hold both parties accountable for not at least making at least an effort to do that. So sure, maybe it doesn't work out in the end, but but damn it, I believe that my representatives have an obligation to work with the others, at least try to work with the other right. side well, and make yeah, a good what, faith would, effort. What would that effort look like? Well, I don't know, but it would have to be something. You'd have to take a look at, get around the table and say, okay, what sort of things are crucial to you? What are less? I mean, it's, it's, it's negotiations. You don't really <laughs> the know. The response so far has been, don't do any tax reform. Uh, no, I don't think that's true at all. I no, think no. Democrats are Republicans. Let me just point out the, the irony of this, because we began our discussion with about the opioid situation and the opioid uh, uh, bill that uh, 60 Minutes has, has lambasted, um, where, again, that was something, that was a situation where everyone agreed, um, and there was broad bipartisan support. Um, so, I, you know, to say to say everything... Uh, uh, is partisan, um, uh, I think is, is a mistake, but, but look, taxes are going to be a partisan issue. Sure. Every, uh, I mean, yeah, there, but let me give you an example. There, there is, there is a certain amount of bipartisan agreement that, uh, we have some issues with our corporate tax rate. Now, Democrats and Republicans differ in terms of exactly how, you know, that needs to be changed, but there are a number of liberals who absolutely agree with conservatives that our corporate tax rate is too high and there are too many loopholes and that some, so I would say that one 
One name one of them who's a U.S. senator, though. Well, I mean, I'd have to, you know, I I can't do that offhand, but I know there I aren't any. Yeah, I mean, well, well, can, can you say you can say that offhand? Because uh, I'll go back and look, I guess, but I don't know that. Yeah, see, you're just willing to just just dismiss that offhand, and I, I think that's I think that's exactly the sort of attitude that that means that we're never going to make we're never going to get back to a, a better place with this, and I just I find it very disheartening. All right. Well. Well, on that disheartening note, we have run very long <laughs> for for today, so I think we'll we'll wrap things up on that. Now, before we do, uh, uh, do you have anything for what we're reading this week, Jay? Kind of something to pull back and. Oh my gosh! Um, you know, I, you know, I, I, can I can I just take a pass this week? I think you can absolutely. I actually had a bunch of stuff, but I don't want to get into it now. Sure. It's sort of, yeah, we can do it, and we've we've run long already. So okay. Well, I'll, I'll hit you hitch up next week. All right. Well, yeah, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what. Then we will. Uh, my uh, my what we're reading thing can be held in abeyance for a week too. I think that's that's uh, that's probably a good point. We've we subjected people to enough for this week. So, all right, folks, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you liked what you heard, and that you will check out today's sponsor, ZipRecruiter, where Politics Guys listeners can post jobs for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com/politicsguy. You know, listener support is a huge help. To us and we really do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, just go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, it would be great if you could share this episode with your friends and followers or pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Also, leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes helps us out too. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do that through mail at politicsguys.com or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page and we're also on twitter at politics guys the executive producers of the politics guys are michael baranowski jay carson trey orndorff and bruce johnson today's show was produced by michael baranowski we'll be back with a new show on wednesday we hope you join us